nations will rise and fall. The world will feel like it's crumbling around us. There will be times where we feel unable to carry on. Our most trusted people will hurt us. But God is still in control. God is still good. God is still providing. God is still faithful. Our God has been, is, and will be the greatest strength in our lives. We can be still because God still is. So I've been accused of every time we start a series here, by the way, unfairly accused, um, of every time we start a new series here of saying, I'm just so excited about this series, and I'm going to do that again. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, if you were here right at the beginning, for like 20 years as I've been a pastor here, just kind of circling around different books in the Bible, trying to decide what to teach on, um, it never felt like the right time to teach out of the book of Daniel. There's been little bits, the stories that we're really familiar with in Daniel, you're probably familiar with Daniel in the lion's den. And if you're a VeggieTales fan, Shaq, Rack, and Benny. And if you don't know what uh, VeggieTales are, don't worry, you're, you're fine. Um, but there's some really familiar stuff. And then there's weird stuff. Like there's some prophetic stuff in here, a lot of prophecy. Um, no matter where your political leanings are, this book will challenge you a, a, a little bit. There's supernatural stuff in this book. And so it just seemed like uh, the right time. And after reading through this, we talked it through and said, let's take the summer and work through this sort of familiar and incredibly unfamiliar book uh, of Daniel. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, uh, you can flip tap or swipe your way uh, to Daniel, which is about 60% 60% of the way through your, uh, your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, uh, toward the end, after the big long book of Ezekiel, it's right there. And so if you have your Bible and you wanna go there, you can do that. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna dive into this, this wild book. So uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that all scripture is, is, is breathed out by you and is useful. And so even as we uh, tackle this book that some of it's familiar and some of it's just really weird, (laughs) um, that we would uh, see that usefulness in our life. And we just pray that you would use it uh, to transform us more into the likeness of your son. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. All right. Daniel 1, verse 1. We're going to start right at the beginning. It says this, in the third year um, of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Um, by the way, if you've not noticed, a couple people on stage this weekend are pregnant. Um, and I told them that they're going to be able to find some amazing names for their children um, in the book of Daniel, especially today. We're starting with Jehoiakim, right? And Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and so we're told right at the beginning that we got these two kings. And this actually establishes in Daniel a little bit of one of the big themes of the book of Daniel, and that is of kingdoms. And I'm going to give you the punchline of this entire series right at the beginning so you don't even have to come back for nine weeks. Um, and it's this, earthly kingdoms will come and go, but God's character and his power remain the same no matter what happens. And that one day, all kingdoms will fade away, and the only one that will be left is the kingdom of Jesus. 
And these two principles, and we really get them, and we're going to see them in Daniel, they should fundamentally transform us uh, from the inside out. So this verse starts by dropping two king names. And the first is King Jehoiakim. Who's this guy? Well, King Jehoiakim was appointed as king of Judah by an Egyptian pharaoh. Uh, to be the king over Judah after his brother was thrown in jail after having only been a king for three months. And, and King Jehoiakim and his brother had a really godly dad, and yet they were evil and wicked guys. And this guy only lasted three years before the Babylonians invaded. And when the Babylonians invaded, uh, they were invaded under the, the leadership of this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. And he was a, a, a small town chieftain that found a way to unify a whole bunch of kingdoms and turn it into what became this massive Babylonian Empire. We're going to see a lot more about his empire next week. Um, but there are actually like three overlapping sieges of Jerusalem and, and, and the Babylonians used different calendars than the Jews did. But when we track all these dates, the thing that I love about these dates that were given, that it was in the third year of this particular reign, is we know um, that this happened between 606 and 604 BC, which is like 2,600 years ago. Now, all of that may seem boring and you might be thinking, oh, we're going to be nine weeks in a history lesson. But this is what I think is really important about this. And it's one of the reasons that I'm a follower of Jesus is because I see that this cross-reference with other, uh, other accounts tells us about a real event that happened in a real time and place in history. We can actually place the time in history that this stuff happened. It's one of the big reasons I'm a follower of Christ is the consistency of Scripture with, his, with other historical accounts. So let's look at verse 2. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels from the house of God and Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon to the house of his God and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. So right here, we run into a theological snag for Western people. And, and, and actually, down through history, this theological snag actually hasn't hit most cultures down through history, but it definitely hits us. But it's fundamental to Daniel, to the whole Bible, to Christian worldview, and it is simply these words, the Lord handed. See, what happens is something crazy has just happened here. If you watch this, you've got this, this king, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, comes in and drags off people from Judah, from the holy city of Jerusalem. He goes into the temple, takes the holy elements that nobody was allowed to touch, and brings them in to worship his own God. And we see that was God's plan. Now, when we see something like that, we don't tend to like that thing about God, Right? But one of the things we're going to see in the book of Daniel is that there are things going on in this world that are above our pay grade. <laughs> and we have this tendency as Westerners to think that we are experts at everything, don't we? Like overnight, a couple of years ago, we all became experts at epidemiology, <laughs> right? Now we're all experts in constitutional law. This is what happens. We tend to think we got, but there are some things that happen that are hard for our brains to wrap around. And one of them is God handed King Jehoiakim over. He allowed Nebuchadnezzar, not only allowed, but he did the handing over of Nebuchadnezzar to take the holy things that were not supposed to be touched out of the temple and to put them into his own temple for the worshiping of idols. This is crazy to us. 
But there's a reason that this happened. When you study through the Bible in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings and 1 Samuel, you'll see that God warned the Jews over and over and over not to forsake him. And the way that they would forsake him is to disobey him by worshiping idols and by not obeying the Mosaic law that they were under. And the prophet Jeremiah even told them, if you continue to break the Mosaic law and worship idols, this is going to be the result. And this was God doing what God said he was going to do keeping his promises. Let's look at verse three. The king ordered Ashpenaz, another wonderful name, his chief eunuch to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them new names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So we got Ashpenaz. By the way, my favorite name, please name a child Ashpenaz. Um, Ashpenaz um, was Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch. Now that word eunuch is weird because it can be translated court official or so, a male who's been castrated. And some people think it was one or the other or both. And then some people believe that Daniel and his friends actually became this as well. No one knows for sure. You can't be dogmatic about it. All we know is Ashpenaz had a job. And his job was to find the best looking dudes... <laughs> The young guys who were super smart, willing to learn that they could do what with? Indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. And the way he did it was genius because it was generous and it was kind and it was all-encompassing. And it started with just giving them new names. Now, the new names mean almost nothing to us. They mean a lot. Daniel, his name actually means God is my judge. And yet he was given a new name, Belteshazzar, which means may Baal, which is a different god, protect the king, Nebuchadnezzar. This is his new name. Let's look at the rest of the names here. Hananiah was Yahweh, which is God's name. So that's actually the Hebrew God's names. Yahweh has been gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku, which is one of the Babylonian gods. Check out this next name, Mishael. Who is what God is? And this one is a slap in the face, as Alex said to me earlier this week. Who is what God is? Turns to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. Literally just changed it around to, to be a different God. And finally, Azariah, Yahweh has helped. His new name is Abednego, which means servant of Nebu. So all three Babylonian gods, Baal, Aku, and Nebu, are now given to these guys as their new names. It may seem subtle, but there's a transformation happening in this culture. And then what happened? It says they were given food. Well, what kind of food? Food from the king's table. In other words, the king basically said, you get to eat the fancy food that I eat. You remember when you were a kid and you went to the first fancy restaurant you ever went to? Like I grew up in St. John's, weren't many options, but about once a year, my family would go to Frandor and have that fancy seafood. 
Red Lobster, yeah. <laughs> the, the cheese biscuits, right? Nebuchadnezzar is like, here's your Red Lobster, boys. <laughs> the fanciest food, you know, from my table, you get to eat what I eat. You get to drink what I eat. They were given Chaldean literature and language to study, which means they were learning this new language and a new society. And the idea of Chaldean is that is basically synonymous in this, this section with Babylonians, but they were the most highly educated of the Babylonians. This is a point in world history where Babylon was the intellectual center of Western Asia, and they, were, they studied astrology and astronomy and all kinds of things like that. And so these guys were going to be trained in all of that. Essentially what was happening is these young men were to be immersed in Babylonian culture, their names, their clothing, their food, their language, what they read, their worldview. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar knew something quite simple. If you get the minds and the hearts of the youth you get the culture. And the way you get the minds and the hearts of the youth is through saturation. Let me say it a different way. Whatever you are saturated in is what you become. And the more people that are saturated in the same thing, the culture becomes that thing. Do I even need to connect the dots? You're probably all thinking of different examples. And here's the truth. It's simple, but it's deeply significant. Cultures are like people. And in a sense, cultures have strengths and they have weaknesses. And so what happens is when we saturate ourselves in a culture, we become all that is strong and all that is weak about that culture. One of the problems in our society right now is we don't think about the nuance of culture being both strong and weak. And we tend to think about it in really like a monochromatic lens, like everything is all wonderful or everything is all terrible depending on the category you land yourself in. Let me give you an example. I'm going to give you a bunch of words. You think in your head what your immediate reaction is to the word that I share. <laughs> Don't say it out loud, just think it. Evangelical. Capitalist. Socialist. Muslim. Republican. Democrat. Liberal. Social justice. MAGA. NRA, Black Lives Matter. Now, my guess is, as I said each one of those things, in your brain, you went, yes, no, yes, no, right? You were, you were kind of thumbsing up and thumbsing down in, in, your, in your mind, right? And so what happened is, this is a true story, about five years ago, I made the following statement um, while I was preaching, and, and I'm going to say it again, and I, was, I carefully worded this statement. This is what I said. I am, me, Noel. I am staunchly pro-life, and I strongly believe black lives matter. Now, when I said that statement about five years ago, um, because I believe that there is a biblical and, and philosophical consistency between those two statements, I got an avalanche of email and social media hits that accuse me of all kinds of things that I must believe and all kinds of associations I must be making because I made those two statements. In particular, the one that razzed everybody about five years ago was that I believed strongly that black lives matter. People left our church over things that they assumed about me. Here's what's crazy. This month, 
I bet if I said this without context, I would get an avalanche of email, not on the Black Lives Matter part, but because I said I'm staunchly pro-life. Why does this happen? Because we become so saturated in a culture that lacks nuance. We are so saturated in a culture that paints with monochromatic brushes about other people and about other cultures that we have begun to believe in our culture that if someone says one of those those statements that everything attached to that is applied to them. But remember, cultures, like people, have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. So in every culture, we can find something beautiful. You should be able to find something beautiful in every single culture, something to love in every single culture. But just because you can find beauty and things to love in every single culture, there are also weaknesses in every single culture. And just because you see beauty in something and something is absolutely true does not mean everything about it is true. You don't have to embrace everything about that culture. There are cultures right now that will mutilate a little girl's sexual organs so she can't have an orgasm in order to minimize sexual immorality. There are cultures who kill people who don't agree with them, and I don't have to embrace any of that crap. I don't have to respect that. But there might still be beauty in the culture in which that thing exists. See, some religions teach slavery. Historically, Christians use the Bible to teach slavery. And that's intolerable. That should, that should upset us. But did you know that in Great Britain, it was Christians that began the fight against slavery? It was the Quakers. Did you know in the early Roman history, when they used to have slaves fight to the death in the Colosseum, it was Christians. There was a guy named Telemachus who threw himself in between the slaves in the the Colosseum to begin outlawing these slaves killing one another. Christians have always had to keep two things in tension, respect and dignity for various cultures and standing for biblical truth when those cultures deny it. And the reason we hold these things in tension is is partially because we don't want to destroy the relationships we have with people living in various cultures that surround us and the fact that everybody who has ever lived is created in the image of God and carries at least a little flicker of that in them. So the cultures that they build are both reflecting the image of God and they are marred by sin at the same time. Well, what does this have to do with Daniel? Remember the very first thing we saw in verse 2? The Lord handed King Jehoiakim and the Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels over to the house of God. What this means is this was all part of God's plan. That Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, we're just going to go ahead and use their Hebrew names, because they were in Babylon, they were there because God sent them there. They lived in the Chaldean culture because that was the culture God chose to place them in. They were living there for a God-ordained purpose, and we are living in our culture in this moment in history for ours. We can't and we shouldn't hide from culture, and we can't and we shouldn't completely assimilate into it. If you're a Christian and your beliefs and your behavior look exactly like the culture around you, you're doing it wrong because you're probably saturated more by the culture than God's word. What we have in Daniel is a beautiful picture of how to engage our culture and to represent Jesus well. Let's see how Daniel and his friends do it. Verse eight, 
Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch, you know, Ashpenaz, not to defile himself. So Daniel is not being a picky eater, right? What is he doing? Well, he knew that the food that came from the king's table was likely not kosher. And he was a Jew, and he lived under the Mosaic law. And so he he knew that whatever was being prepared likely was not going to be prepared in a manner that he could eat it without violating the the, the Mosaic law. And then the wine that they drank was probably going to be served to idols. And so in drinking this wine, he was concerned that he was going to be worshiping idols. And do you see that the very thing that concerned Daniel were the two reasons that they were in captivity in Babylon? He wanted to make sure he obeyed the Mosaic law as a Jew, and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't worshiping idols. And it's a beautiful reminder that in every culture, there's always a remnant of people following after God. And so here we have this little remnant of guys, Daniel and his friends. Now watch this. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. And God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion with the chief eunuch. And yet he said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. When he sees your faces looking thinner than the other men your age, you would endanger my life with the king. Now there's a bunch of stuff in here that I want you to miss. We're only eight verses in and Daniel has made a friend. Daniel has made a friend with who? The chief eunuch working for the king, the the top uh, official working for the king. And and of course, this guy in charge uh, of all of the eunuchs is, it says that God is the one who granted him kindness and compassion. But these two things are working together. We see the tone and the attitude that Daniel has. What does he have when he sees this, this food being brought to him and this wine being brought to him? What does he do? He says, heck no, I'm not eating that. What does he do? He asks permission. He is kind. He is respectful. You can see in Daniel's tone in the way he approaches this, this chief eunuch that, and, and God had already given him compassion and kindness with this guy. And we're going to see this in, in Daniel. We're going to see this, this tension that Daniel holds so very well where, where time and again he has a gentle approach and God grants him favor with people through that. Those two things work together. Verse 11. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with the servants based on what you see. This is actually genius. It's not that he's being vegan, right? He's not being a picky eater. What he's done is he's, he's found a plan. The, the plan is genius because if he eats just vegetables, there's almost no way that the vegetables would be prepared in such a way that would violate the Mosaic law. Um, by saying, hey, there's no command in, in the Old Testament that the Jews wouldn't be able to drink wine. But for him, um, he's like, if we go with water, we know that it hasn't been sacrificed to idols. So what he's doing is he's building a, a plan here. And, it, and he says, just test us for 10 days. That's the win-win. Because for Ashpenaz, he's like 10 days. If they're looking bad after 10 days, he can reverse everything. Uh, go back to, you know, fattening them up with the king's food. And then, ever, and then no one will know. It's like uh, no harm, no foul, win-win, the whole thing, every cliche you want to throw in there, right? Now, I know that there is something subtle here that I just don't want us to miss. Amidst this pressure for Daniel and his friends to become fully Chaldean and Babylonian, 
They didn't resist by saying, no, we won't learn the language. No, we won't dress this way. No, we won't read these books. No, we won't be immersed in the culture. They drew the line only where there was a concern that they would violate God's law or worship idols. And I think there's a lesson for us in there. Because Christians are historically really bad at drawing lines. We tend to draw them in the wrong places. When I was a little kid, everybody told us, all the Christians told us, you can't be a Christian and play Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) And then when I was a youth pastor, I was told, you can't be a Christian and read Harry Potter because you know there's like witchcraft in there. But you can read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia somehow. (laughs) You can read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings because Christians wrote them, right? It, it, just, we, we draw lines in just really weird places, right? And so what happens is we draw lines more in our cultural comfort than based on where Scripture is. On the flip side, a lot of Christians never take any time to consider the media that they're consuming, the politics they believe, how they spend their time and money through the lens of Scripture. So what ends up happening is we either isolate from culture or we completely assimilate into it without thinking. Now go back to Daniel. Daniel's friends find this fine line. And there's an implication in this fine line where they say, what? Just for us, just give us veggies and water. What are they saying? They're not saying to Ashpenaz and the other Babylonians, you must become like us. They were saying, there are some ways in which we cannot become like you. And if we adopt this posture, it changes everything. Because as Christians, we don't expect non-Christians to think like us. Why would we? They're not. Right? That's the whole point. They believe something different than we believe. So let's go back to Daniel, verse 14. Um, He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay, one quick tangent that I've been thinking about a lot uh, studying through Daniel. And it's this, Uh, Daniel wasn't alone. He's never alone. He had this community of friends who had the same conviction that he did. And in my experience, people who are drifting away from Jesus are missing one of two things in their lives, and if they're missing both of them, then it's kind of like game over. They drift faster. The first is, they're not spending any time in God's Word. So when you talk about saturation, they're completely saturated with the world and not saturated at all with the Word of God. And the second is, they have no Christian friends that they're spending time with talking about the convictions that they have. You've probably heard the old saying, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I actually think that that is super insightful. And may I suggest that as a follower of Christ, maybe you make one of those people Jesus. And maybe one or two of those people would be followers of Christ. I don't think we should spend, by the way, I'm firmly convicted, we should not spend all of our time with Christians. If you're doing that, you're removing yourself from culture and you're missing the whole boat. But make sure some of those people around you hold the same convictions that you do. Look at verse 17. 
So God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And there it is again. Just like God handed Judah and the vessels from the, the, the temple over to Nebuchadnezzar, just like God gave Daniel a good reputation with the chief eunuch, God has now given these young men knowledge and understanding. In what? Check this out. Every kind of literature and wisdom, which is what? The stuff that they were studying. They begin to understand Babylon. They begin to, to understand the, the astronomy that they were being taught and the language and the culture that they were being immersed in. And then Daniel got this unique special gift to understand visions and dreams of every kind. Spoiler alert, that's next week. It's supernatural. It's bonkers. Make sure you're there for this one. Um, we'll just leave that out there. Verse 18, at the end of the time that king had to present to them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. 10 times better. All right, I want to give you a warning about the book of Daniel. It's going to be tempting to look at Daniel um, with a couple premises. The first would be, America is Babylon. And if we start with that premise, it is an oversimplification. Because every culture is Babylon. <laughs> That's sort of the point. <laughs> The point is, every culture, not just the good old U.S. of A., has strengths and has weaknesses. There, every culture assimilates us into that culture and saturates us with that culture. And we should, in every culture, celebrate the strengths, celebrate the beauties, the things that make our cultures great, and the places where our culture is out of line with the Word of God and falls short of the image of God. We should courageously and tactfully and kindly and gently point that culture in the direction of God. And how do we do that? By our example. Years ago, I remember meeting a guy uh, at a conference, and he was an author and speaker. And I can't remember if this was in his book or if this was at the message that he gave. His name was Leonard Sweet. And I'll never forget this line. He said, Christians should have a critical but not unfriendly posture toward culture. Isn't that great? Now, why does that matter? Look at the words of Apostle Paul in Colossians 4. He says this, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person. So here's the deal. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote this, was in chains. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. And what does he do? What does he ask for? Does he ask for a, a nail file to cut up, open his chains, right? Bake me a cake, slide the nail file in, bring it in. That's what I'm asking for, right? Does he ask for God to supernaturally have the prison walls crumble down around him. No, what he asked for them is for them to pray. And what does he want them to pray for? That, that the, the walls would crumble down and the chains would fall off? No, he asked them to pray that he would have boldness to continue to do the thing that caused him to be in prison. He's like, pray that there would be open doors for the gospel so I could tell people about Jesus. 
And what does he call it? He says, so I can keep preaching the mystery of Christ. By the way, it's a wonderful phrase. Paul uses it a lot. And when you go study the mystery of Christ, you're going to find that. And when you combine all the times that he uses it, what he is talking about is this. Jesus came to earth, lived his sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of God the Father for the purpose of saving everyone he could. That there's an invitation, not just to the Jews who are waiting for the Messiah, but for every one of us. That there's an invitation to call to Jesus to save us. That anyone that calls on his name will be saved. That God has a divine plan. And while earthly kingdoms may, may, will come and go, God's character and power will remain the same. And that one day, every kingdom will collapse until there's only one that has left the kingdom of Jesus. And, and, and if we get this idea, it changes who we are. So if we're like the Apostle Paul sitting there in chains, our prayer would be, give me more opportunities to talk about Jesus. Jesus. That's why Paul said that Christians should what? He, he said all the stuff in his verses. He said they should act wisely toward, towards those who are not Christians. It's why he says we should make the most of our time. It's why he says our, our speech should be gracious. Because whether we are in prison like Paul in Rome or we're Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's court in Babylon, there are people around us looking for answers. And what they don't realize is the biggest answer that they need is about a different king, King Jesus. A king that came to save them from their sins. And the reality is, no matter how many of us there are, four of us in the Babylonian court, or millions in a country like America, Christians will always be a weird cultural minority. If you really live this out, you're going to be weird and absurd a little bit. But let's make sure we're weird and absurd about the right things. <laughs> and just like Daniel and just like Paul, you are called to be strangers and aliens and ambassadors of another king and another kingdom. Look at the very last verse in Daniel 1. It says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So now again, what can we do? We can cross-reference that date. We cross-reference that date. We find that that year is 536 BC, which means it is 70 years later. Daniel went into the court as a teenager, and he stayed there serving in Babylon until he was in his 80s. Why? because that's where God wanted him. And you are in this culture right now because this is where God wants you. To be an alien, to be a stranger, to be an ambassador, to be weird in the right ways, and to gently point this culture toward the image of God as reflected in Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that happened 2,600 years ago. Um, and we thank you that even then, Daniel was looking forward to a king that he didn't know his name. That he knew that one day there would be a king that would, that would, that would crush all other kingdoms. And now we know the name of that king is Jesus. And so we just pray in our culture that we would be 
men and women who are saturated by your world, by your word, as this world is trying to saturate us in its worldview. We just pray that we would have the courageousness to be absurd in our culture when that time comes. We pray all this in Jesus' precious and saving and kingly name. Amen.